joy worshiping with you. All right, so last week we saw some of the struggles of Paul's imprisonment. That his response was not to highlight his struggles or to complain about his circumstances. The measure of his success, the aspiration of his life was the gospel going forth. And God was doing it in, or through him in prison far greater than he could have ever imagined. This was not achieved through Paul's success or his growing fame. This was achieved through his imprisonment. And the whole imperial guard, they heard the good news of Jesus through Paul's imprisonment. And so today's message serves as an elaboration and a continuation on the theme of the aim of our lives being the advancement of the gospel. This text further illustrates just how much Paul staked his life and his ministry on the advancement of the gospel at all costs. While last week had to deal with primarily his surroundings, the rough circumstances of being in a prison cell, now it has to deal with Paul's reputation and the mistreatment of others, what others think of him. Two different types of suffering, but both very real. Some of us might prefer to be stuck, left in a jail cell all alone, rather than to be publicly mocked or defamed, or to be at odds with others. Last week we saw that other believers, they were spurred on by Paul's example. They were emboldened in, by the example in his imprisonment. And so Paul's courageousness was contagious, and as a result, these Christians, they're becoming confident in the Lord. They're bold to speak the word of, the God, word of God without fear. But not all these Christians going out and proclaiming the word were genuine in their pursuits. Some had motivations going forth in love, and as we'll see today, others were motivated by sinful desire. Let us pray that we would be those that are motivated in love. Dear God, we come before you this morning. We see Paul's example. We see his desire to make your name great and how you use us in the most unlikely of circumstances. Lord, make the desire of our heart the advancement of your kingdom. God, may the gospel that we know and cherish that has so changed our lives be something that we don't just sit on, but something that we love our children with and love our spouses with, that we, we preach to ourselves daily, that we uh, just savor every opportunity to share the goodness of your name. Help us to be moved by your love. In your name we pray. Amen. So today we are going to see two groups Two groups, one is the loving supporters, and the next are the envious rivals. And both these groups are in verses 15 through 17 of chapter 1 of Philippians, if you want to turn there with me. And we'll also see a righteous response in verse 18. And so join me in your Bibles on Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. So Paul was not naive to think that everything was going, everyone was going out with pure motives to preach the gospel as a, as a result of his example. Paul is a realist. He's, he acknowledges that not every aspect of his imprisonment is sunshine and rainbows. There were Paul supporters, but there were also Paul haters. And these groups were both preaching the good news of Jesus, but with entirely different motivations behind them. 
one group out of the goodness of their heart and because of their goodwill and love towards Paul, and the other group because they were jealous of Paul. They saw him as a competitor to be taken down. They were envious rivals who were seeking to make a name for themselves. The group that preaches Christ from goodwill, they're not hanging out at goodwill in, in, at a store preaching Paul. They're, they're, they're filled with goodwill. They, we see them elaborated on in verse 16. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Their motivation is love. They knew Paul's true intentions, that he was there for the defense of the gospel. If you go just a few verses back in Philippians chapter 1, verse 9, see, Paul has a prayer for the church in Philippi. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Their love goes hand in hand with a knowledge of the truth. Their love for Paul was guided by this knowledge. No matter what was being said, how Paul was being discredited or spoken ill of, they knew the truth. They knew and loved Paul, and they wanted to honor the Lord and his servant by being bold with their gospel witness. These fellow Christians had genuine affection for Paul, and they had confidence in God's work through him. So while imprisonment in this culture may have seen as such a shameful thing, it did not change what they knew to be true. When we think about being motivated in the Christian life, our day-to-day motivations, what comes to mind for us? Do we find ourselves being primarily motivated by love? Or are we motivated by other things? Maybe when it comes to our Christian walk, we're motivated by a sense of duty or by a protection of our reputation and how others might perceive us. I'm convinced that there is no greater motivator than love. Fear or duty, they may burn hot. They may be strong for a while. But there's an enduring quality that love has. If we are living for religious obligation, it just simply will not last. There's something about being motivated by love that puts all other motivations on the back burner. Have you all ever done something crazy for love? I'm sure you have. I'm sure we have stories that we could tell. It would be a good time. I remember the time that I was going to ask my now father-in-law for his daughter's hand in marriage. He said yes. That was good. But I remember being so sick, so ill, that I couldn't even sit up in the car we were traveling in. They laid me out on the floorboards for us to travel 13 hours to Havana, Florida from Louisville, Kentucky. And this trip was not like a week long. This was for a weekend. I was so sick, and Christina did not understand, why are we not canceling this trip? Repeatedly, she asked, why are we doing this? Why are you putting yourself through this? And we were just dating, so there's still that honeymoon period where, you know, she'll just let these, you allow things that you, she probably wouldn't, she probably said, no, we're canceling this. You're not putting you through this today. But duty as a motivation might have found a more sensible time to go later when I wasn't pulling every couple of hours to go to the bathroom. But love can drive us to forego the safe and sensible option for what we know to be right. In 1 Corinthians 13, it tells us that love bears all things. It believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 
love never ends. The sacrificial love for a parent of a parent for their children. The giving of ourselves to help a beloved friend in need. The long-suffering, patient love of a husband and wife who have been married for decades, dedicated to each other's good, no matter what, through the ups and downs. The love of our neighbors, who if they died in their sins today, they would spend an eternity in hell apart from God. A love to share with them the gospel truth regardless of what they think of you. Love moves us to put others first. And it has this enduring quality that sustains us. Paul wants them to abound in love. It is fuel for the Christian's life. Love will sustain them and love will sustain us. A love for their Savior, a love for Paul, and a love for others to know the hope of Jesus. This is what launches these Roman Christians out in boldness. An overflow of love from the God who first loved them. We've taken a look at these loving supporters in verse 16. They're launched out in love, knowing the truth about Paul with all certainty. In verse 17, we see our second group, our second motivation from these envious rivals. The former proclaimed Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. We don't know exactly who these individuals are, but we do know a few things about them. They are motivated out of rivalry, selfish ambition. It's important to acknowledge that these are not false teachers or heretics. They were preaching the true biblical gospel. We know this because if they were preaching a different gospel, Paul's response in verse 18 that we're about to see would go against the, everything that he had believed and proclaimed up until this point. In his other letters, Paul fiercely goes after those who would change or add to this gospel of Jesus. Paul says in the book of Galatians, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul says that even if I come back later to you with something different in mind in regards to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, or even if an angel tells you something different, let them be cursed. So there is no way that these rivalry preachers are twisting the gospel message. Paul is all about the truth of the gospel being preserved. So for this passage, we can draw the conclusion that while these two different groups share, they share one, there are two different groups, they share one same identity. They are both included in the Christian family. They're, they're brothers and sisters in Christ. They both preach the same gospel, but their attitudes are different towards Paul. His rivals might be jealous of his apostolic power and authority. They might be jealous of his success, his smarts, his following. Envious people hate the success of their opponents. We see this play out in our social media feeds and in our news networks. When their opponent does well, envious people downplay their success or, or make excuses. And probably worst of all is when they celebrate in their misfortunes. 
Some of you may be familiar with the word schadenfreude. It's a fun word to say. Schadenfreude is a combination of the German noun schaden, meaning damage or harm, and freud, meaning joy. Schadenfreude means joy over some harm or misfortune suffered by another. This was the attitude and motive of the second group. They were kicking Paul while they perceived him to be down. They might be saying, can you believe that Paul guy got arrested? He has damaged the Christian cause. If he were truly a godly man, that never would have happened. This was their time to shine. Paul gets thrown behind bars. The number one gospel influencer is locked up, and now we get to make a name for ourselves. Paul is in chains. Now we can draw the bigger crowd. And this is what Paul is meaning when he says that their attempts to proclaim the gospel are not sincerely but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So whereas the first group was motivated by love, knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that Paul was put here for the defense of the gospel, this second group is motivated by their selfish ambition, and they are thinking, not knowing, this will inflict damage on Paul. One group has a love for Paul guided by knowledge, not of what they think, but of what they know. In the second group, they are not guided by knowledge at all, but foolishly think that their actions and own self-promotion will hurt Paul, will damage him. They're full of speculation about all that Paul was doing wrong, and they thought they could afflict him, but they were wrong. Paul exposes their motives. These Christians preaching from rivalry, they were being hypocritical. These are people who are at war with their own testimony, their inner self different from their, outer, their public self, at odds with each other. These would be like two people who get in a fist fight, fighting over who loved the other one the most. It doesn't make sense. They are preaching the message of reconciliation, all the while not having reconciliation with Paul, their brother in Christ. The one who probably bought, brought the gospel to them in the first place. They are preaching a message of abundant love while failing to love their brother in Christ. Those motivated by love, they were marked by a contentedness, a freedom, secure in who they were and what God had called them to do. Envy, on the other hand, is characteristic of people who are not free but are enslaved. Enslaved to what others think of them, enslaved to worry, enslaved to make their own way in their own efforts. Envy, dissensions, and division, if we look into their origins, these are fruit of our sin nature, our flesh. We read in Galatians 5, it says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In this list of sins, do you find it surprising 
that rivalries, dissensions, and envy make the same list as drunkenness, sorcery, and orgies. It shouldn't surprise us. These things are absolutely destructive to the unity of God's people. Churches splitting, fights taking place. How many people today don't darken the door of a church because of what the devastation caused by these sins? How many people who once professed Christ want nothing to do with Christianity due to the dissension that they have seen amongst God's people? And we know that these envious rivals claimed Christ. So either they were Christians who were disillusioned, short-sighted in their sin, or either they claimed Christ without being truly born again without possessing a changed heart and new desires, preaching and proclaiming a gospel that they have yet to truly know for themselves. I believe that these were Christians who were not thinking and living rightly. Sadly, because this mindset of division is alive in the church today, it's all too easy to find and to dwell on each other's weaknesses, to pick at flaws, and to insist on our own way. For a pastor to take shot at their predecessor. That's why I chose to plant a church. To protect me from that sin. How much charity do we have for those that hold to the same gospel that we do? Think about how quickly labels are thrown out. About other churches, other Christians. This group we might designate as woke because they have a sympathy towards injustice that is placed above the gospel in our eyes. This group might be Christian nationalists caring about politics more than the gospel because they are so distraught about the state of our country. All too quickly, we can sound like Pharisees who are critiquing Jesus for eating with sinners. Instead of seeking to understand, we make accusations, many times speculating making a final verdict without even having a knowledge of the truth. I was at a denominational meeting this summer, and I was so encouraged by the people in that room. The decisions that were being made, brothers and sisters seeking unity, seeking faithfulness to God's word, a shared desire to look our shortcomings in the eyes and repent and grow from them. And while I was so encouraged in person, I would later see that what was being said about the meeting online and what was happening, what was being said about the meeting happening online painted an entirely different picture. And much of it, at least in my experience, did not reflect reality. People with different agendas were seeking their moment to shine. It was so discouraging to see all this piling on online, accusations were rampant, things taken out of context, or things said in the least charitable way. Different camps bashing each other in this wheel of division and rivalry that kept spinning by many who were not even present at the meeting. This should not be, especially among those who claim Christ. I think a good test that we can analyze our own hearts with is when we hear something bad about someone else, what do we do with it? Do we spread gossip and slander? Or do we seek to protect each other 
Do we take everything at face value and escalate? Or do we go to the source seeking to confront our brother and sister in love? Later in Philippians, Paul will encourage the church at Philippi to kill any spirit of rivalry among them. He says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. How might this world be different if humanity lived out this verse? If every person counted others as more significant than themselves, it would be a different world. In Paul's example, in response to these rivals, he's giving them a test case to live by, modeling for them what is right in his current circumstances. He's showing them how a Christian ought to behave. And when he gives them this charge later in Philippians, he's not asking them to do something that he isn't already living out and practicing. I think sometimes a pitfall in reading the Bible is that we remove the human elements and think that Paul and others were superhuman and did not feel or struggle with the same temptations we do. In my sanctified imagination, I have to think that Paul definitely would have been wounded to hear of others that were seeking to put him down, but that is not where he chooses to dwell. Just like in his imprisonment and the conditions in his cell, he doesn't make a big deal of his unjust treatment. He had feelings, encouraging, discouraging days, just like anyone else. But in his heart, he says, what does it matter? Because the aim of his life is not what others think of him. The aim of his life is the advancement of the gospel. Paul knew that it didn't matter what others said about him because he knew what his heavenly father said about him. He was once a sinner under the wrath of God. He was full of envy and hate seeing Christians as rivals to the Jewish law. So full of selfish ambition that he would kill Christians. We see in Acts 9 that Paul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. But God was not done with him. God changed his heart and raised him up to new life in Christ. The same change that he has done in many of our lives. He was now freed from working in his own self-righteousness to live and uphold the law perfectly. Paul's eyes had been opened, and now he's able to see the bigger picture. Even while he's behind bars, even while his arms are rubbed raw by his chains of his imprisonment, even while others are mocking him, Paul was able to see this because he knew his perfect, sinless Savior went before him to the cross. The crowds mocked him. They scoffed at him. They unjustly accused him. Even in their evil words towards him, he did not look on them with malice. Jesus showed compassion for them. As he was dying on the cross for the sins of his people, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There is no greater act of love shown than at the cross. Motivated by love, he selflessly died so that even while we were living for our own selfish ambition, we would be reconciled to God. And in all his glory, even with those who aimed to see his demise, he rose triumphantly from the grave, 
showing his ultimate power and sufficiency to be our Savior. And this salvation, it is for all who would turn from their sins. And, and instead of trusting in themselves and all of their inconsistent, warped motivations, they would place their trust in Jesus, the perfect lamb who was slain. And as a result, we now have changed hearts, changed motives to renounce our selfish ambition and live lives of love that he has secured for us. Now, in our life as Christians, we don't have to know, find our identity in what others say about us, whether that be good or bad. We know what God says about us. John 10, 27 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. This morning, if you are in Christ, trusting in him, you are eternally secure in him forever. In his care, forever an object of his affection. And nothing will ever change that. With this new status, we have a newfound purpose. Living for the advancement of this wonderful news. Living for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we've seen two different groups, the loving supporters and the envious rivals. I hope we know which one we want to be a part of, right? We've seen their motives towards Paul. Let's take a few moments to consider the righteous response from Paul in verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul responds with a question, what then? A modern day equivalent might be, so what? Who cares? Paul is like, rivals? I don't, I don't have any rivals. Oh no, you're mistaken. I'm, I'm not here for my glory. I'm here for the glory of the one who saved me and sent me. I don't have rivals. What then? Paul is unconcerned about his fame or his status in comparison to other preachers. They may have good or bad motives, but what matters is that Christ is proclaimed. And because of this, Paul is overjoyed. He sees past the petty side quest of personal fame, and he, he celebrates when the one worthy of all glory is preached. As long as the gospel is preached, he doesn't care who gets the credit for it. It's important that we recognize that this is not just a general blessing for anyone who preaches Jesus. There are many today that use the word Jesus, but they use a different dictionary. They define who Jesus is entirely different. Mormons preach Christ. Jehovah's Witnesses preach Christ, but their Christ is entirely different from ours. There are those who preach a humanist Jesus, a progressive Jesus, a hippie Jesus, a health, wealth, and prosperity Jesus. The Jesus that Paul preached and celebrated being rightly proclaimed was the objective, historical God of the Bible and not man's subjective interpretation of him. The same Jesus that we strive to preach and uphold today. As we seek to apply this to our lives, as, as Paul strives to promote unity throughout this letter, it's important to remember 
that unity is always found in truth. There's no true, there's not true unity where we are not unified in truth. As a church, we can only be so unified by the common beliefs that we share. That's why when we join together as a church, we dedicate time to understanding our statement of faith, understanding our church covenant, understanding the gospel. A house divided cannot stand, and our unity is always found in the common truths that we hold to. Another thing I am struck by is Paul's excellent use of communication, his appropriateness in communication. His words are spoken very carefully. He knows how to spiritually triage his arguments. He would never condone sin, but these envious rivals who preach and hold to the same gospel, he points out their wrong motives and their area of growth, but he doesn't take this opportunity to bash them. He doesn't seek to destroy their credibility. Notice the difference between his stance towards them and what he says later in Philippians about those who are twisting and changing this gospel message. He says later in Philippians, in Philippians 3, verse 2, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Those that would add or pervert to the gospel of Jesus, Paul has choice words for them. He calls them dogs, evildoers, mutilators. But for these short-sighted rivals, Paul shows restraint. Paul doesn't give them such harsh labels. Paul's exemplifying what we see in James chapter 1. That if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Paul knows when to make a stand, and he knows who the true enemies are. We should be careful to distinguish the same. I do want to acknowledge that there are churches that have the true gospel. They preach the true gospel, but that gospel can be clouded or confused by their practice. There are churches who I believe that they, by their methods, they undermine the gospel message. But I think we can see that if Paul were here today, he wouldn't condemn them. He would first see them as brothers and sisters in Christ. He would see that they possess a weakness and not a wickedness. I think he might say, praise God, you have the gospel. Now let's work to grow. Let's see where we can most glorify God. We can even learn from Paul's example in the way he treats other Christians, even those that badmouth him. Our hearts shouldn't be against anyone who rightly proclaims the gospel. If Paul can have this charity in a prison cell, can't we? Maybe they don't do it exactly like we do, but if Jesus is proclaimed, we can rejoice. Brothers and sisters, if Christ is the center of our life, the core of our being, we share the same spirit with other believers. And when we disagree well, this is an opportunity to put on full display, to show the world that there is something different here. That our, our differences, they provide us with an opportunity to love, to show the love of Christ. And finally, Paul doesn't just settle. He doesn't give a half-hearted blessing of these envious rivals. No, he rejoices. He doesn't begrudgingly say, I guess I'll allow it. 
He's overjoyed that Jesus is preached. When we talk about the aim of our life being gospel advancement, we're not talking about some type of grin and bear it. Oh, got to advance the gospel today. Like we're dragging a bag of rocks. No. If we put the advance of the gospel at the center of our lives, the center of our aspirations, see, see what joy God has in store for us. And the ways that he will use us. Put him at the center of your life. See, see what happens. Take all that he has given you. Your time, your talents, your resources and relationships and steward them for eternal purposes. Our comfort, our hurt feelings, our reputation and our misunderstood motives, all of these are insignificant in comparison to the advance and the splendor of the gospel. This gospel is life. This Christian life that we get to live is a life of rejoicing. Even in our suffering, we can rejoice. We have an imperishable gift in this life, and it can never be taken from us. We possess and get to live for an intimate relationship with the ruler of the universe, and it can never be taken from us. No matter what's against us, no matter who is against us and what is said about us, for all eternity, we will be with our Savior. And in this life now, we live with pursuit of him in the advance of his glory as our aim. He is working in us for our good and for his glory. Let's rejoice in what he has done. Let's pray.